0: Welcome back to the History of the Barbarians podcast, Season 1, Episode 11, titled, Gothic Meddling. My name is Josh Hirschman. When we last left off in our story, we were looking at the religious conversion of the Goths and the life of their bishop, Wulfila. This week, we'll be looking at the Goths and the years preceding the chaos in the barbarian world of the 370s. So today's episode is going to focus significantly on the Goths' interaction with the Romans, and in particular, in the Eastern Empire. So let's get to it. Back during the Roman reign of Constantine the Great, around the year 332 CE, the Turingi began the raids into Roman territory again. In order to deal with this threat to the border, Constantine signed a treaty with the Goths, making them federati of the empire. This enabled the Goths to keep their plunder and that they had garnered during the recent raids and have a peaceful Rome to their south. Outside some small raiding parties here and there, the Goths had a somewhat peaceful relationship with the Romans. They even served as mercenaries many times for the Romans throughout several conflicts among the far-flung edges of the empire. Goths even served the empire in various advisory roles to the emperor and his generals. This relationship is going to change. Through this time period, the Goths had proved themselves as faithful allies and servants to the Roman Empire, but all good things come to an end. And this in particular will fall apart in the mid-360s, as it will be a part of a series that would lead to the disintegration of the Roman Empire and the world as we know it during this time period. This part of the story, predictably, has to do with the death of a Roman emperor. In 363 CE, a general named Jovian was declared emperor by his army and ruled basically just as his own army and died less than a year later before making it to Constantinople. A meeting of leading officials met in the city of Nicaea, after much debate, decided to declare Valentinian emperor of the western half of Rome. Valentinian quickly named his brother, Valens, his co-Augustus, and ruler of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. These two brothers were born from a non-royal family of southern Pannonia in Sibalia, which is in modern-day Croatia, near the borders of Serbia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. As younger men, the brothers witnessed the demise of their father at the hands of Constantius II because of his father's favoritism to a usurper to the Roman throne at that time. The circle would be made full in the year 364 when Valentinian and Valens become the co-Caesars of the west and eastern portions of the empire and are the actual usurpers to the real throne of the Roman Empire. Now, as this is all going on, there's a man in the eastern portion of the empire a relation to Constantius and Constantine, making him part of the House of Constantine. Procopius is his name, and he was a civil servant and part of the court of Emperor Julian. Procopius and Julian were first cousins who had the same grandfather named Julian Julianus. Grandpa Julianus owned a slave named Mardonius, who was a Gothic eunuch that tutored the young Julian before he became an emperor. Mardonius is said to have a huge influence on Julian as a young man and even as an advisor to him when he became emperor. Some have speculated that Mardonius, a pagan, influenced Julian to abandon his Christian faith and to go back to the pagan ways, including his persecution of the Christians in the Roman Empire during his reign. Julian the Apostate was named Caesar of the Western Empire in 361 by his cousin Constantius II. Julian's father was a brother of Constantine the Great, and therefore put him in line to be eligible to don the purple. Julian would earn the pejorative, the apostate, through his deeds against the Christians during his reign. That part of the story is interesting, but does not really drive our narrative here. So I will direct you to the History of Rome podcast to check out more on Julian's deeds. What is important is that Julian died in 363 while fighting the Sassanid Persian Empire. The fact that a goth named Mardonius was such an influence on Julian the Apostate is an interesting side plot to the story, as this part of our narrative will lead to a large role in the eventual disintegration of portions of the Roman Empire. Valentinian and Valens know that Procopius was close to his first cousin, the Emperor Julian, and decide that he is a threat when they take over. According to Ammianus Marcellinus, Procopius is captured by the new emperor's men and held captive. He is able to make a daring escape to a town in modern-day Crimea, where he's able to lay low for several months. Eventually, he decides to go to Constantinople, where he is supposedly seeking the counsel of a famous Roman named... Strategius. Now, with the unrightful emperors, Valentinian in the west and Valens, away from the capital, Procopius decides to do something about these usurpers of the Constantinian line of emperors. On September 28, 365 CE, he declared himself emperor of the Roman Empire. He quickly gained the loyalty of the couple of legions in the capital, and they march out of the city to stake his claim. After securing Thrace, he moves to Anatolia and secures the northwestern part of Turkey. Valens, in the meantime, has raised his legions and heads towards Procopius to put down this rebellion. Procopius and Valens meet in a couple of battles in western Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, named Theretira and, finally, Nacolia. Barbarians fight on both sides in this Roman civil war. Valens used barbarians as auxiliary troops in all of his battles of this campaign. Procopius had the loyalty of many Alemanic barbarians, including generals Agilo and Gomorius. But most importantly for our story, Procopius had 3,000 Goths for him during this rebellion. And you may remember that number 3,000 seems to be important throughout our history of Federati or Feta status between the Goths and the Romans. The Goths had been in this Federati-like relationship with the Romans dating back to the time of Constantine the Great. They faithfully followed their agreement through this time. The usurpation of the Constantinian line of emperors did not interfere with this agreement. So their 3,000 Goths there were actually fulfilling the Federati uh, relationship with the Romans in the Gothic mind. So in fact, the Goths claimed that they were Faithful to the Romans by supporting the Constantinian Procopius against the illegitimate Valentinian and Valens emperors. The Goths may have been supporting a rightful heir to the empire, but in that they were supporting the losing side of a civil war. Valens defeats Procopius and his barbarian allies at Nicolia in 366 in w- modern western Turkey. Procopius hangs on as a fugitive for a bit longer in the wilds of Phrygia, which is in kind of central modern Turkey, but eventually he is killed. Many of the Goths are killed and enslaved, but some are able to head back north of the Danube to their homelands. Valens is now firmly in charge of the Eastern Empire, and he is pissed. After cleaning up in Anatolia and securing his power in Constantinople, he is ready to punish those who betrayed Rome and, more importantly, betrayed him, meaning the Goths. To punish the Goths, Valens leads his legions north of the Danube to punish Athanaric, who is the leading Tervingai, reek. During this campaign, Valens is able to destroy much of the settlements and territory just north of the Danube, but he could not draw the Gothic leadership into a set battle. Valens is able to chase Athanaric into the Carpathian Mountains, but is not able to finish him off or to lay siege to the mountains without making his troops too vulnerable. So he continues to plunder the land of the Trevengai uh, and even placed a price on the head of each goth that was brought to him, which created a market for gothic heads. As the fighting season of 367 comes to a close, Valens returns back to his side of the Danube River with his plunder, which includes coins, goods, livestock, and slaves. Now remember the name of the gothic Greek, Athenarch, and remember the Carpathia Mountains, They're both going to be important to our story in the near future. Now, as we move on in this narrative, the fighting season of 368 rolls around, and Valens is back at it again. He gathers his legions again and heads north of the Danube to punish the Goths. This time, heavy rain and flooding of the Danube River prevent him from crossing. So Valens and his legions are stuck on the southern side of the Danube River. They used this time to build up their defenses, including several Quadraburgia forts that made up much of the outer defenses of the empire. After spending months in the floods and the mud and the rain south of the Danube River building up his defenses, Valens would return back to Constantinople without his retribution against the Goths for that season. The 369 CE fighting season held much greater fortune for Valens and the Roman legions, Valens crossed over the Danube at Novi Dunum, which is in modern-day Romania, but all the way east, almost to the Black Sea. After some maneuvering, Valens is able to lock Athanaric into a pitched battle where the Tuvingi are defeated. This defeat is destructive enough that the Romans are able to force a peace deal. In this peace deal... The Goths were able to open up trade again, but with just a couple of cities, but they did not have to provide mercenaries to the Romans anymore. They did have to send hostages to Constantinople to secure the peace. The Romans got a secured border as they had built up their defenses greatly during the Quiet Campaign of 368, and Valens could then leave and try to go deal with Shapur and the Sassanid Empire in the east. Tensions with the Sassanid Empire had flared up again, and the Romans needed to head back to the edge of the empire to defend its borders. The peace would last for just a couple years until the real heathen barbarians come into the picture, the Huns. Now, an interesting story involving this peace is that the agreement was solidified on boats in the middle of the Danube River near Novi Dornum. The reason for this is that Athenaric supposedly vowed to his father, Aoric, to never step foot in Roman lands. This vow was, was made because his father, uh, whom we'd mentioned back in episode 10, hated the Roman Empire so much through his dealings in the middle of the 4th century under his regship. Now, we'll come back to this, this anecdote later in our narrative uh, and mention it, but it's just kind of a strange uh, little anecdote that pops up in history that uh, catches people's ears. In the aftermath of the peace, Valens would secure his eastern border and move his capital temporarily to Antioch to deal with the more pressing issues with the Sassanids. The Romans would not have a break from threats to their empire in the intervening years. The Goths, on the other hand, would have a secure border for the short term and would immediately use this time to purge undesirables from their territory in a blatant scapegoating, targeting Gothic Christians once again. It is during this early 370s period that, that Athenaric will order the persecution and exile of many of the growing number of Christians in the Trevingi territory. Athenaric and the Gothic elite were worried that the Christians in their ranks had aided Valens in the recent years or would aid future Roman war efforts. There is evidence of Wolfila, our friend from last episode, maintaining contact with the Goths north of the Danube from his new Moesian Roman homeland, which would further the suspicions of Athenaric it's during this round of persecutions that we have the story of Saba that we told in the last episode, number 10, which is still one of my favorite personal stories so far in our journey. Now, this is probably a good place to quit for this week as we've led up to the peace with Rome in 369, and we are now heading into a time period in the 370s where essentially the world is going to be turned upside down for the Goths. And because the world is being turned upside down for the Goths, it's going to be turned upside down for the Romans and many other people as well. This is the time period of the Great Migration, where we have many different Germanic tribes moving through the Roman Empire that is going to destabilize it, along with many other factors that help eventually lead to the downfall of the Roman Empire as we know it. So next week, we'll be looking at the Goths' interactions with the Huns, and we will explore the Huns and what they were and how they truly were the barbarian that everyone thinks about when we talk about this time period. So if you listen on iTunes, please leave a review if you like the show. The good ones help other people find it. Now, subscribe if you can, please. Uh, if you're interested in following the story, that is the best way of keeping up to date with me. This is a work of progress, and I want to make this better. So leave some feedback on Twitter at History of the Barbarians or on Facebook. And we will leave some images that are associated with this week's episode on Facebook and on Twitter. And thank you for listening. I will see you next time.